Yo, Rodney, what's happening? I want to give a shout out to my little bro. He, uh, mm. He's becoming a helicopter pilot and had his first solo flight this week. Crushed it. And it's getting ready. He's either getting ready to, I mean, I guess by the time this is done, he will have completed his cross country flight and be on his, well on his way to being checked out. And I just, you know, I just want to throw out some love, man. That's a big deal. It's, it's dope. And, uh, Hey, listen, normally I always try to laugh at the end of these, but I like that. Shout out, shout out to you, Ev. Welcome back to More in Common. I am your co-host, Keith, with my man, Rodney. What's going on, dude? What's happening? And we are anchoring humanity in compassion conversation for the means of productiveness. We have a great conversation coming up with Natalie here. And uh, she she described compassion as indescribable. It's an indescribable feeling for her. But if she had to put words to it, which she did, she uh, described it as, as looking at somebody you love and not wanting anything of them. And I and I would, and from, from my interpretation of that, I would say looking at anyone, whether or not you love them with a relationship and just not, not, want, not needing anything from them, but just seeing their humanity. And being able to love that and then try to try on. to make something better for them regardless of yeah no there's so that many part things. as well yeah. so we got a good conversation coming up yeah yeah i mean we talk about compassion and just that very idea of going at things and approaching things with care for others um, and setting your ego aside. We talk about her film and just the sentiment around it, around internalized racism and creating a film from a different perspective without a feel-good ending for your main uh, protagonist or antagonist, I should say. So she is an incredibly impressive human being and... I'm very excited to bring this conversation to you, mostly to give her more exposure because she 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 has earned it. Yeah, uh, and I would say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna link in the notes for this uh, some of the work that Natalie's already done. She's done some really cool stuff, some really powerful stuff, and definitely check it out. And this conversation will give you some more insight into more work that she's doing that will hopefully get some acclaim. And we go into the dynamics of race in this country and what it means for her as a, a, a mixed race young woman that grew up in the southeast and uh, what it means for Keith and I a little bit. So we hope you uh, we hope you enjoy that. And before we jump in, I want to encourage you to share this episode if you like it or if you know anybody that might like it, please share it and leave a comment and also uh, jump out to our website, more in common ent.com you'll find all things more in common including keith you want to tell them about the other thing that we got yeah we got, our man. consulting practice if you can imagine a corporate culture fueled by compassion like that's what we do we give tools and help organizations and individuals better engage see hear, and value each other and the people in order to feel more fulfillment, happier, ultimately bringing more to the job, all based on compassion. So um, if you're interested, hit us up. We're not hard to find. We'd love to hear from you. 
now we can go to the show. Let's go. What always like stood out to me was just that I always want vulnerability, not only from my actors, but also just wanting to take a more like kind approach as opposed to this very like making your actor do like a hundred takes until they're miserable in order to get the best of performance. I just feel like that doesn't work because if the whole point of telling a story and like building characters is to show vulnerability and like the beauty of being a person then being mean to them and yelling at them probably just doesn't work like not even not not only is it like bad just from like a ethical standpoint but it also just doesn't work so today we are with natalie christensen natalie is a second year film production student in the school of film and television at loyola marymount university her films and screenplays have won and been selected in festivals and screenplay competitions across the United States. Along with her film, she has been a pianist for 14 years and produces music scores as well as solo work. In 2020, she released her sophomore album, Accidental Wine, under the artist name Renaissance Woman. She also is an activist who organized and created a protest group in 2020 called Henrico Justice in her county in Virginia which held three successful protests until she returned to school. More recently, she planned a Black Asian Solidarity March in Los Angeles and formed an API student coalition at her university. Her art focuses around pressing issues in the world today and stories she believes can change the world for the better. And that's absolutely true. Facts. Natalie, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Super excited to have you. Um, yeah. so we start off every show. Now I'm excited about this one because we're all about compassion and we ask you a question in the lead up. What's your favorite tip to navigating difficult conversation? And you essentially said compassion without compassion approach with care for the other, not to defend your own ego. How do you access that care for the other, especially if it's after they said something that might be triggering for you, or it is a hard conversation and you're, you're worried about how they're going to respond or react. Like, how do you anchor on that? Hmm. I guess what I was thinking of is, uh, if you're having, if I was thinking of having a conversation where I'm the person in the wrong or where I don't understand something. And I think that it's like a totally different dynamic when it's on the other side of things, at least for me. But I find that I just kind of, approach it from a place of mindfulness. And I just sort of try to notice in my body how I'm feeling. And if I feel like I'm feeling fear or anger or defensiveness, then I notice that and then act the opposite of that. Even if that's not how I'm feeling, I just act in compassion regardless or ask how the other person is, or even I'll even be upfront about how I'm feeling and say like, I'm feeling this way right now, but I want to be here for you. And just taking like responsibility for my feelings and how I'm, I'm feeling and instead of putting that on them, sort of. Have you ever had a moment where you're like in a heated conversation or argument or whatever and you're like, I'm mad. I mean, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at me because I because I fit because but you're like you're saying it angrily and you're like at them, but like to yourself. And it's like a sharing of the, the rawness and it's. I don't know. It's it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing to think about, like how sometimes it feels like you want to say this other person made me feel this way when they did or said this, as opposed to I'm feeling this way in reaction to how 
they responded in this situation. And I feel like the best thing I ever learned was like, I went to this camp, this activist camp when I was 14, and they taught us nonviolent communication. And that has just guided me through everything. Just taking, like, just being like, this objective thing happened. I felt this way. And so can you please do this thing? And it has to be like a reasonable request. And that has just been so helpful and everything for me. Yeah, it's funny Nobody you said can make that. you feel anything. Yeah, and that separation of like how I'm feeling and what happened, like what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking about what happened are often different and conflated. And understanding. So I, one of the core tenets of nonviolent communication is understanding the difference between how you're feeling versus the action itself in an effort to, okay, like you are making me feel like I am not going to, I am not going to have enough to give you whatever it's, it's something, but what you're really actually making me feel is maybe I'm just feeling angry as a result of this conversation. So actually identifying the emotion and you seem to, I mean, based on your answer, it seems like you have a a high emotional IQ Like, do you find that to be natural for you or do you work at it? I do think it's something that I continuously work at. I think in the past year, I've gotten a lot better at just communicating about every little thing, even if it's a tiny thing, just communicating about it because those little things add up until suddenly I'm angry over something so small. But it's not just that one thing. It's all these things that added up, especially when you're living with people for a long period of time. That can be really helpful Or sometimes like just a small or like even like medium sized conflict would come up with one of my friends where like maybe I did something wrong and I realized that in the past my immediate reaction is wanting to fix it, but not because I want them to feel better, but because I'm scared I'm going to be a bad person. And so sort of like shifting that into just being like, okay, actually my goal here is to make this person feel better as opposed to make me look better in their eyes or whatever. And so that's been a big shift for me. It's like that next level stuff. Yeah, that is, that is next level stuff. How did you get to that conclude? Like how, where did that come from? Honestly, I, I just have an amazing roommate, Mick, who is really into communication. Like I thought I was pretty good at communicating how I felt, but I realized I only did that when I needed to and not like on a regular basis. And I remember one time I forgot like the circumstances, but I think I had done something wrong where I had like miscommunicated with one of my friends and or like I had said I was going to call her and then I did it and I was hanging out with someone else instead something like that and I talked it through with Mick and the way I was talking about it was very like me worrying that she was going to hate me now as opposed to worrying about her feeling left out or feeling neglected as a friend and so when I I just started practicing shifting that whenever I was in a scenario like that I would just shift it to like oh I don't want this, this person who I care about, I don't want them to feel this way as opposed to, I don't want them to hate me or something. And it's a very, it seems like you also, you're approaching with care for them and yourself because you are acknowledging your own feelings towards it, whether or not you agree with them or you feel that they're silly or ridiculous. You're not saying I don't have them. You're, you're acknowledging them to yourself and then, or maybe to them out loud and then moving on. That's pretty cool. Thanks. That's really cool. There's an interesting thing, and I'm curious if this is your experience now. 
that when we practice, we still fail, but we can get to a place of where we want to be faster, right? It's, um, are you finding that is the result for you where you're actually may have that instant reaction, but it's like, okay, I'm going to get back to where I need to go versus it dragging out for days, weeks, or months. For sure. I think it used to be like it would take maybe like a couple days or something before I made that shift. But now I just already know that that's what I want to do. So in the moment, I notice myself feeling defensive, feeling sort of like standoffish and just like I just notice how I feel in my body. And then I'm like, okay, I'm feeling defensive right now. I just need to. But I just remind myself, like, how does this other person feel? Like, I want to make sure, like, my goal is not to feel like I'm a good person. My goal is to make sure that they're okay right now. And I I had to do that a lot on the film set that I was just on because I'm sort of responsible for all of these people and their needs and stuff. And um, even in the moment, if I disagree with them or whatever, it just, I would just shift my mindset to like, okay, I just need to make sure this person feels cared for right now. And there's an interesting conversation there about life hacks, Keith, because not everybody means the same thing by that is true. But it's it's similar to asking, like navigating difficult conversations. And I think this is a really amazing reflection of how we all hear words differently. Like what is a difficult conversation to you is very different to me, which is different to a lot of other well, even people. the nuance that Natalie gave yeah. us, like she was looking 100%. at it from the perspective of being the wrongdoer, not the wronged or just the equal party and just like you voted for x and i voted for y right so there's a lot of different ways to look at it and i'm curious so you're in charge of taking care of everybody's needs you're also directing a piece of work that you have some you have some needs like there are some discrete things that need to happen you have some timelines you have deadlines your budgets you have so you have things you need how do you balance that with what you need. Well, luckily I have, I had an amazing assistant director and he was so, he, the assistant director is sort of supposed to be like the parent on set who is taking care of everyone. But sometimes with the actors and stuff, when they have a specific need, I'm just right there and I'm the person that they see to ask for about the need. And so even though it's not all like technically my job, it just comes up. And then also like, there are just things that are very, like acting is such a vulnerable thing to do. And especially in intimate moments, just making sure they feel comfortable, making sure we do the intimacy training before there's a kiss scene or something. Like all of that sort of adds up. And then in terms of taking care of myself, one thing that I that was really powerful that I learned during this set specifically was that it's okay for me to tell everyone that I'm feeling stressed or that I'm extremely tired or that I'm just feeling sad or something. Because I always thought like growing up that being a good leader meant having no emotions just because I think I thought the the fault of women is that we're too emotional or something like that. And so that means that I, in order to be a good leader, I have to have no emotions. And if I show any emotions or I cry or anything, then suddenly everyone's going to be like, oh, exactly. That's why she shouldn't be here. And so what I realized in this set was like, oh, actually I can announce to everyone, hey guys, I'm so exhausted and we're going to get it done anyway, but I am tired. And I know you all are tired too. And so just so you know, like, that's how I'm feeling right now. And I think just that was like, so helpful on that, on that part, like what was the, so this is the, you said this is the longest project you've done, Yeah. but on others where you didn't do that kind of comparing the two, what was the result of you sharing that? Well, most of them were so short, like we're like a day long shoot or something that it didn't really, I didn't really have time to build up these really painful emotions, but 
just in times where I was feeling stressed, I would just completely like hide it and just, I would just continue with like my very professional like way of going about things. Like I just would make sure that it wasn't evident that I wasn't feeling well, just because I also thought that if I showed that I was stressed out or uh, feeling exhausted, then that would make everyone else feel like more stressed and stuff. And then I didn't want that. So, but I found that when I actually did tell everyone, Hey guys, I'm feeling really exhausted, but we're going to do it anyway. Like we got this. I think that actually like empowered me more as a leader because everyone was like, Oh, she's extremely tired, but we're still going to do this. Like that's crazy. So I think it actually helped a lot. And I just felt better being open with everyone. Vulnerable leadership's kind of a thing right? Like we're, we're learning a lot. Brene Brown's really kind of pioneering that in a way. Is it something that you came to on your own? Did you have a mentor? Like what, how did you, how did you come to the conclusion that I should share this? Well, I think that the, when I was, sometimes when I just think in my head, like what makes me different from all these like big, like men directors that I mostly see as like the best directors or whatever or in, at least from like what I've heard or what I see in film school. And what always like stood out to me was just that I always want vulnerability, not only from my actors, but also just wanting to take a more like kind approach as opposed to this very like making your actor do like a hundred takes until they're miserable in order to get the best of performance. I just feel like that doesn't work because if the whole point of telling a story and like building characters is to show vulnerability and like the beauty of being a person then being mean to them and yelling at them probably just doesn't work like not even not not only is it like bad just from like a ethical standpoint but it also just doesn't work so I think I just always have taken a very vulnerable approach with my actors and then I was like well maybe I should take that approach with myself and my crew and I think that's sort of how it came about was just like my approach with actors bleeding into everything else. It's like yelling at your kids not to yell. It's like, don't you yell, <laughs> you know? <laughs> or or yelling at your dog, stop, like, stop yeah. barking. And they're yeah. like, you're, yeah. you're barking at me yeah. right now. Yeah, literally. Bro. That, that is what uh, I'm hearing from you. Yeah. So pipe down, Chachi. What is, you've used the word vulnerable a couple of times. What is vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerability? Like, what is the, what does that mean to you? To me, vulnerability means revealing something when you have something to lose or stakes in the game. Like, I don't think, I think sometimes when I used to think of vulnerability, it would sometimes mean just like, oh, just being, just like sharing very personal information or sharing something that's like kind of, you're not supposed to talk about or something. But I feel like sometimes that can like become a joke or just be (laughs) oversharing. And um, I think of it as like, oh, maybe I'm a little worried about sharing this or, um, but I know that I want to, or something like that, where there is like kind of some sort of stake in the game and, uh, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. No, that's, that's good. That's a good, that's a good clarification. I feel like there's also such a like physicality to it as well. Like there's a big difference between me asking someone how they feel, just like, how are you feeling? And there's, and me asking them while like making very direct eye contact with them with a very like soft intonation in my voice. There's such a big difference between how you like say it too. I mean, 70% of communication is nonverbal and there are been reading some studies up on compassion and the way people receive it and like how we receive the care from somebody else isn't just, are you, are you okay? 
right? It is how your eyebrows are formed. Do you have a furrowed brow? Are your eyelids intense? Are you leaning in, leaning back, arms crossed? Are you angry? All of that stuff plays plays such a role in how we receive other people. So you've just directed your longest film, and it's all about internalized racism. Yes. Tell us about the story of what you're trying to portray as it relates to internalized racism. Well, I feel like there were several goals with the film. I think internalized racism sums up like a theme that comes up the most in the film. But I feel like it's sort of a culmination of everything I've learned about race up until now. And it's it's like heavily based off of my experience growing up in Virginia, being who I am, and the people that I was around in Virginia. And I think my goal with it was just sort of to make a film about racism that And not that there aren't films that already exist like this, but I just wanted to make something that was for Black and POC people and not for white people to, like, tell them about it, but just to empower these individuals as opposed to, like, sort of, like, a lesson, like, teaching white people, like, what racism is. And so there was that aspect to it. And then just also wanting to, like, sort of go beyond the stereotypes that I often see in in general discourse or in media so those were kind of two goals that I had with it. And it was heavily about like the internalized racism that these three characters are dealing with living in Virginia in this small town. A culmination of all the things you've learned to, about racism to now, like what are some of the biggest, what's one of the biggest things you've learned to this point in your 19 years? I think a lot of the things that come up in the film that I've actually learned fairly recently, a lot from Dr. Rooks is about mixed race identity because I think I there's this archetype that Dr. Rooks taught me about called, called the tragic mulatto archetype, which is the idea that if you're mixed, then you won't belong in this group and you'll never belong in this other group and that you're just sort of forever doomed or something. And I think in Virginia, it's very interesting because it's sort of like almost there, there is like an Asian population, but it's not there's not a big Chinese population. And because of the way that our schools are segregated, I was never around a lot of Asian people like at all, like in high school, there was maybe, like, one or two other Asian people in my whole, like, center, and they were Vietnamese, so, like, we bonded over being API, but not over the same culture. And then, otherwise, like, our schools are usually pretty much completely Black or pretty much completely white. And so, in my head, I was, like, I think early on, I just thought I was white or just thought I should I should be white if I, can, if I could be, if I could manage to be white. And then later, I realized that I wasn't, but... I didn't really see, like, I didn't feel like there was any place I really belonged, I guess. And, or like racially, I just noticed that I I couldn't have like the comfort of having like a community around me where like, I didn't have to worry, I guess, about, like, I I, I never had like a community where I felt like I was a part of that community, I guess, if that makes sense. And so I kind of forgot the question. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it's Um, okay. Real quick, you said API, meaning? Meaning Asian Pacific Islander. Thank you. I think the question, the idea, of the question is to you. You. Oh, you asked about lessons. You asked about lessons that I've learned. Well, like one of the top things you've learned about racism, internalized racism. But I think this is a. I mean, that it doesn't get much more personal than your story and and how you've experienced your own relationship with race. And I think that's kind of where you just took us. And. We've actually had a conversation with another woman who who has a very similar kind of story, but go ahead. 
I think what I learned, though, this is what I was, I think, getting to, was that in Virginia, like, I went to the, the first high school that I went to was almost completely Black, and I'd never been in a space like that before. And I actually found, like, a lot of friends and sort of, like, a local community that accepted me. But in the back of my head, I was always like, I don't actually belong here, and I shouldn't be here. And, like, going into college and going to L.A., where there's a ton of Asian people and like at my school and in general— I was like, oh, now do I have to be in the Asian community? Like, I've never been in this space before. And basically what I've learned is that it's not about, and this is literally a line from the film, it's not about picking sides. It's about picking people who truly care about you. And while there is, like, I think something to, like, having, like, a community, like, I've started to get involved in the Chinese community at LMU. What it really comes down to is, like, there are people that I've met in Virginia and in L.A., who just truly care about me. And that's really what matters to me the most. And I don't have to get so caught up in like my people or whatever that means, which I think is what I was always caught up in growing up was like finding my people when they were always right there. It was just my close friends who cared about me. That's I, I wrote down belonging because you mentioned having some really strong friends, but always feeling like you didn't belong. So it, that's what it was. It was you were holding on to that. I need to be in my community. Is that, is, is that where that was coming from? Or what did that sentiment of belonging mean to you then? And then I think I know what it means to you now because of that quote you just gave, but what does it mean to you now? What, what does belonging mean to me now? I think it just means feeling like I can fully be myself and that my friends will just have my back and just be good friends. And that, uh, even if we're different, I don't have to be like, even if everyone in my friend group seems kind of like they're in like a community together, as long as they love and accept me, I can trust that I'm not an other, that I'm not an outsider and that I am like just as loved and cherished and accepted, even if I'm not a part of that community, which was like, I don't know. It took me a while to learn that. What made you, like, have you reflected on what made you think that you needed to be in a community that looked like you? I think when I was in middle school, it was sort of, like, so I went to like a very white middle school and then that was like completely white. Like there was no one Asian in my whole grade and I got made fun of a lot for being Asian. And so I think like when I was there, I was just like, oh, well, I should just be white. And I remember like in middle school, I, I just, I just think, yeah, I think I wanted to be white at that point in my life. And then when I went to high school, I realized that whiteness wasn't all there was because suddenly I was like in this school that was like almost completely black. And yeah, I think at that point I was like, okay, well, I'm definitely not, I think, I don't know, I don't know where the, where the desire came from. I think it was just sort of like, I noticed that people, because it was so like segregated, I noticed that people hung out with people of the same race. And so in my head, I was like, well, I don't have anybody to hang out with that looks like me. Because I think there's like an there's like kind of a sense of safety, especially just like even at the first high school that I went to that was mostly black. Uh, sometimes like racist things about Asian people were still said. Um, there wasn't the same power dynamic as when I was at my white middle school, but there was still a sense that I was like an other, I think. And I just sort of wanted to be able to be somewhere where I never had to worry about that ever. And I thought that if I was around all Asian people or uh, just I just thought. I just didn't think that place existed. And I think that I clung so hard to the model, the tragic mulatto like archetype that it just became a part of who I am was just like, oh, I'm just in the middle and I'll never belong anywhere and I'm just going to live with it. So I think I just became comfortable with that 
like archetype being a part of me. It's interesting how that the supremacy, the white supremacy can be internalized in every, in other groups and then weaponized as bigotry or, or prejudice towards another group. And it often is. It's something you said on community. You said, I, you know, belonging was about being with people that care about you and you know, they have your back, you have theirs, like there's a, there's a kinship, even if you're not part of that community. And I would almost, I, the first thing I thought of was like, well, but you are like, if those, if that's happening, then that's your community. Like you are, and, and I think the the color lines are still, or like the race lines or the ethnicity lines are still there for so many of us where it's like, yeah, but it's not mine. But it's like, yeah, like if somebody's got my back, that's, that's my people. All right, we're gonna put a slight pause in it right here so you can go do other things and think about this conversation and get ready for the back half because it's a fun one. See you in a couple of days. Have a good one. Make sure you like this, share it. Sharing is caring. Take care.